Welcome to the Discovery Pod, where we talk to leading experts from the University of Adelaide about solutions to society's most pressing challenges. Cancer screening saves lives, but is it so effective that it leads to overtreatment? Our leading cancer experts discuss this topic. Joining me is Associate Professor Teresa Hickey, National Breast Cancer Foundation Fellow and Breast Cancer Expert, and Professor Lisa Butler, Cancer Council Principal Research Fellow and Prostate Cancer Expert. So Teresa, let's begin by talking about breast cancer. Can you tell me how common breast cancer is in Australia? So breast cancer is a very common disease. In fact, at the end of last year, the world statistics showed that breast cancer was the most common cancer worldwide. Wow. And it, it, as of last year, it uh, went above lung cancer as being the most common cancer around the whole world. So very common disease here in Australia. It affects about one to seven to one to eight women mm -hmm. in Australia. And it accounts for around 3,000 deaths annually. Mm. And what are the sort of risk factors? There are a lot of risk factors. Um, when people say what causes cancer, I think it's important to recognize that breast cancer isn't just one entity. There are different types of breast cancer. Uh, almost all cancers are involved with certain mutations uh, in genes that allow the cells to behave abnormally. For breast cancer in particular, um, they have, of course, most people have heard of the BRCA genes or the breast cancer genes that give you an inherited susceptibility to breast cancer. But apart from that genetic um, propensity, most breast cancers are driven by abnormal estrogen action. So most breast cancers are driven uh, by abnormally elevated estrogen hormone action. And therefore, most breast cancers are treated with drugs that are anti-estrogenic in nature. Okay. Mm. And so um, is age, given the increased exposure, yes. Yes. also a Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Most cancers, except for certain, certain cancers, but most cancers are age-related, that mm -hmm. your risk goes higher as you get older. And in part, that's because as you get older, your cells acquire more mutations. And so the likelihood that you spontaneously get a mutation that is a bad one goes higher as you mm -hmm. get older. Right, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And Lisa, how common is prostate cancer? Well, very similarly to breast cancer, it's the most common male cancer in most developed countries and, uh, and is the second leading cause of cancer deaths in men. Uh, and interestingly enough, Australia and New Zealand have the highest incidence worldwide. Mm. So, uh, you know, which is an unfortunate record to hold, mm. uh, but you know, it's, it's, so it's a, it's a huge health problem. Mm. Is there any reasoning behind that increased Incidents? We don't really understand, and I think that's uh, kind of an interesting thing. It's, it, part of it is probably like breast cancer in the sense that it's very much an age-related cancer, so it tends to increase with your age. So 60% of 60-year-olds have some form of prostate cancer, 70% of 70-year-olds, and so mm. on. So it is definitely an age-related cancer, uh, and you know, but we don't really understand why it is so common, uh, other than the fact that we're testing more and more for it. Right. Yeah, and obviously uh, the screening programs in Australia reflect how common both cancers are. Uh, Teresa, can you describe the screening process in Australia yes. for breast cancer? Yep. So at the moment, um, mammographic screening is, is uh, something that is now well established in Australia and in many countries worldwide. Uh, as most people know, early detection has made a huge difference 
uh, in uh, the lives of women. Uh, you know, even 20 years ago, um, if you had a diagnosis of breast cancer, your likelihood of surviving more than five years was quite low, whereas now the likelihood of surviving is up to 90% because the screening allows you to catch them early. Right. <laughs> and before they become really nasty. And mm -hmm. that has made a big difference. Yeah. Okay, so for our visual listeners, what mm -hmm. does a mammogram actually look and feel like? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is a funny one. You can go online and hear the funniest thing about screening mammography because they literally push your breasts in between <laughs> two plates and squeeze really hard. Right. So it's super uncomfortable, yeah. uh, not a fun thing to do, and importantly, not something that you can have repeatedly over your life. So right. one of the debates in screening, mammography screening at the moment is how, how, at what age should you start? So typically it was recommended that you do it every two years after the age of 50. And some people are pushing to have it earlier after the age of 40, especially if you have, are deemed to be at higher risk. The problem is, is the more screens you get, the screening itself can increase your risk over time of because course. it's it's x-rays mm -hmm. and um, and so you have to balance the risk of the screening with the with the risk of the disease itself so right. um, so one of the really important areas of research is to find better non-invasive ways to screen for breast cancer. And there's a lot of fascinating work mm -hmm. in that field. I, I don't do that sort of work, but I'm aware of a lot of research trying to find new ways to screen. Right. Mm -hmm. And after that screening, that uh, mammogram process, mm -hmm. um, do are all the positive findings generally breast cancer or are there, can there be other things that come up looking like breast oh, cancer? Oh, absolutely. So the screening is just to detect something that looks abnormal. Yeah. And, and now with the screening mammography, they're very good at it. You mm. and I would look at that scan and say, no, but they can pick out the tiny little dots here that are uh, abnormal. They're really good at it. Uh, however, some breast cancers can be very occult, and and another big topical area in breast cancer research these days is breast density. Mm -hmm. So, and and by density we don't mean big or small. We talk about the material inside the breast, whether it's really tough. Uh, or whether it's more soft and squishy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's the easiest way to say it. And if it's really tough, that tough tissue in there can more easily hide a cancer than if the cancer occurs in soft, squishy tissue. It sticks out better. Okay, and yeah. so one of the important issues now, if you're a woman with a have high breast density, that you might have to go on and have an MRI scan for them to be able to confidently detect a cancer. But MRI scans are very expensive and so they're not used for routine screening. Mm. Right, okay, thank you. And Lisa, can you describe that screening process for prostate cancer? Sure, well, it's certainly sort of less painful in that sense. Mm -hmm. And, you know, since the mid-90s, we've had a blood test for prostate cancer called PSA or mm -hmm. prostate-specific antigen. And so that's a very sensitive test uh, that can detect this protein, PSA, in the blood. And, and it can detect changes in that, you know, to a very, very sensitive level now. So, um, you know, I think in the past, many men were really worried about, you know, having to have a, a rectal examination or 
or something like that, um, which in and of itself is really, uh, you know, not too bad. Uh, but these days it's not, uh, you know, certainly not a first line of, of, uh, of testing. It's, it's really around this blood test. So, um, so now that's part of the reason we're detecting so much prostate cancer now. Before we had that test, prostate cancer, I guess like breast cancer, often doesn't have any symptoms. So uh, a lot of men get worried if they get up to the toilet at night and things like that. But often that's from benign prostate disorders, not necessarily cancer. Uh, and so many men, when they used to present, were already had um, widespread metastasis. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, their outlook was really poor. So now we have the opposite problem. We have a very good blood test that detects prostate cancer, but it's not very specific. So it also can detect, uh, you know, benign enlargement of the prostate as well. Uh, and also it's, it's so good that it can detect cancer that maybe was never going to go to grow and cause any health problems to the man in the future. So that has resulted in prostate cancer being what we call a very overtreated disease. So I think often a natural instinct for people if they know they have a cancer is that they want to have it removed. But with prostate cancer, I don't know if you, well, I'm sure you are aware, but your listeners may not be so aware of where the prostate gland is actually located. So it actually surrounds the urethra at the base of the bladder. And so it's really important making all the seminal fluid that gives sperm its health. And, uh, and so partly because of that, when there's surgery to that area, there's often some really bad side effects. So the men will have often incontinence, impotence, and this can last, you know, now men are getting diagnosed at 50 and sometimes even in their 40s. So this is decades of these sort of really debilitating side effects uh, to maybe save um, some of those cancers that would have gone on to be aggressive. So we, we're really struggling at the moment. It's one of the main research areas is trying to understand when you diagnose someone with prostate cancer, is that a cancer that's going to just sort of sit there and never really cause any problems to the man? Or is it a really aggressive one that needs to be dealt with, uh, you know, aggressively right up front? Right. Uh, so you mentioned the benign growth of mm. prostate, which is often a cause of that increased PSA. So that's that right. protein that's created by the prostate. What sort of, uh, what do you mean by benign growth? So it's something that, it, again, is very age related. So it's incredibly common and most men do experience to some degree. So it's just an expansion of certain cells in the prostate. It's not a malignant growth. It just tends to cause problems because it starts to press on the urethra and causes urinary symptoms that, uh, as I said, often gets men a bit nervous, but is actually not a, a, a malignant change, so to speak. But unfortunately, it can cause a bit of angst when people are having their PSA tests because they think, oh, it's gone up, maybe that could indicate mm. cancer. So that's when they have to go in and have biopsies and actually look at the cells in the prostate and see is there any evidence of, of cancer in there. Right. So, yeah, you mentioned the issue of overtreatment. Mm. Teresa, is that an issue in the area of breast cancer as well? Yes, very much so because, again, like Lisa says, because we have such a good screening program and these screening techniques are very sensitive, you're going to pick up disease that, probably never would have mm. been even felt by the woman beforehand. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, a lot of, remember back in the old days, it was you feel your breasts and if you feel a lump, then you go in. Now we tell every woman to go in and get this very highly sensitive test that can detect a lump that may have sat there as a little lump undetected for that person's whole life. So mm -hmm. there is that issue of uh, over-treatment. I think with women, uh, it hasn't advanced as much as men with prostate cancer because removing the prostate is 
a lot more difficult being where it is, whereas breasts, as you know, <laughs> are a little bit more <laughs> accessible than the prostate. And so, and as Lisa was saying, uh, once a cancer is detected, it's very hard for the patient psychologically to accept that maybe it, it, it's okay and nothing needs to be done. And so minimally surgery is, is performed in any case. Um, but surgery has its complications, even if it's what we call minimal surgery, which these days is just removing the lump. And even that has uh, progressed from, a, from decades ago, uh, a lot of research showing that you can just go in and remove the lump, whereas 30 years ago, the whole breast would come off whether you had a tiny little lump or a big hunky tumor. <laughs> and yeah. now we know we can be confident with small tumors that have features that look less aggressive that we feel confident we can go in and, and just take out the lump and then wait and see. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. But we haven't gotten to the point where in prostate cancer they have a watch and wait program yeah. uh, that yes, we've detected something, but why don't we watch and wait to see if it progresses? Whereas in women, we haven't, we haven't hit that stage yet because most yeah. just, okay, just take it out. Yeah. And it's been interesting to see the evolution of that. Yeah. You know, at, at first, I think people were very anxious about that program mm. and, you know, what if something happens if yes. I don't intervene straight yes. away? But I think now that there's kind of more common awareness of these mm. side effects and the fact that, you know, I think yeah. many men and, and doctors in particular are realising how extensive that overtreatment is, people are much more willing, particularly if they've got a very, very low-risk tumour, so their tumour has very, you know, minimal features of, of aggressive disease, they're actually a lot more comfortable these days in just having regular monitoring, um, whereas once upon a time, I think the, the push was always, you know, if it's there, maybe we should get it, out. it out. So, um, yeah. yeah, so I think, I think that's changed. And I think there's been a lot of development in that space about getting men to talk about what the side effects Absolutely. are. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, and saying, you know... Uh, I, you know, these are the kind of side effects you can, you know, you can, you know, expect mm. and, and that might make a patient with a watch and wait type tumour to reconsider to and lean yeah. and be more comfortable. Mm. You know, men are talking about it more, which is a really good thing. Mm. You know, there's a lot more men's support groups and Absolutely. when they get together and talk about the uncomfortable stuff, you yeah. know, it's like not things people like to talk about. Incontinence is not something that you want to sit around and chat about, but when you get together in support groups mm. and talk about that, then it becomes, you know, uh, uh, more. Uh, the, the patient has more knowledge about yeah. making those decisions. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Women talk about it a lot, <laughs> as you know. So that issue is a little, I think, less. Uh, uh, maybe well, we've not. had I'm interventions sure. our whole life. I think that's yeah. the difference. Whereas, yeah. you know, for some of these men, and I think particularly elderly men, yeah. um, you know, some of them may not have had any medical interventions or tests mm. for a very long time for in their lives since they were yes. sort of quite young men. And point. so, yeah. and then to suddenly have something that's really quite yeah. confronting that you really yeah. don't like to talk about. Like is, to talk about. Yeah, oh, that's, a, that's a good point. You know, for yeah. us, I think we've, you know, <laughs> we've been exposed. <laughs> everything out from a very young age. Yeah, <laughs> so, that's true. Yeah, we're that's used to true. it. Mm. Yeah. Lisa, what does your research look like in this area? 
So I guess it's around that topic we talked about with over-treatment. We're really keen to, you know, take some of that anxiety out of the decision-making process when somebody is diagnosed with prostate cancer. So for someone that has, you know, a very low-risk uh, disease, we want to just be sure, is it really low-risk or, you know, is there a chance that that might turn nasty down the track? Uh, and on the other end of the spectrum, you know, for most men, they sort of have a, a, a disease that's kind of falls in this grey zone that where no one really knows what's going to happen to that tumour. And so I think if they had a bit more clarity about this is looking much more like a low-risk one that's going to grow slowly, perhaps I won't have an intervention. On the other hand, at the moment, they have surgery and then they're just sort of watched for a long time as well. So, but for some of them, if they're going to have a really uh, aggressive tumour down the track or most likely to... They might want to have an intervention, mm. an extra, you know, what we call an adjuvant therapy then. So something that's given to them at the same time as their surgery, just to really hit it on the head and make sure that, you know, they've got the best chance of a good outcome. So my work's really around trying to uh, come up with tests. So we, we look at the tumours themselves and look at the blood. And, uh, and in particular, you know, we've uh, come up with some really interesting changes in lipids in the blood. So we often have these blood tests every year, you know, the, the, with the doctors where you look at your lipids and um, more for cardiovascular disease to see, you know, is my heart function healthy, you know, is my cholesterol high and things like mm. that. But what we've shown is that you can also apply that to prostate cancer, a very similar test. And what we hope is that by combining the PSA test with another non-invasive test like that, just might give a little bit more information to help with that decision-making process. I mean, you know, so in some cases, you know, men will do what they decide to do or the doctor feels is important. But in many cases, it's not clear and there is a grey area. And so mm. that's what we're trying to really help um, yeah. you know shed some light on that and give more information because I think one thing that we've learned about you know we more and more now us as scientists we work with patients you know mm. so we have a patient, lot of uh, yeah mm. patient advocates that mm. are involved in our research mm. programs they tell us about how their experiences of cancer mm. have been what mm. they think is important uh, in terms mm. of research mm. and that was one of those things you know I sort of wondered myself you know would you really want more information or is it just too overwhelming and mm. the response very much so from all of our patient advocates mm. was no the more information I have I could never get enough you yeah. know I want yeah. more information so that I can mm. read you know, in light of this diagnosis that's, you know, hit me out of the blue, I need to know more and, you know, help myself, you know, make a decision that's going to be best for me, best for my family, my mm -hmm. kids, all of these sorts of yeah. issues that people are dealing with with the diagnosis of cancer. It's a lot. Yeah, and I can imagine that if if a patient's cancer does fall in that grey zone, mm. that decision is then put on their shoulders. Yeah. And that's quite, that, that's a lot of pressure when there's um, quite serious complications um, in the balance there to consider. Yeah, that's right. And, mm. and, you know, and it gives them things that they can ask their doctor as well. I think that's another thing is it's not necessarily that the patient has to make the decision, but, you know, sometimes they're, um, you know, very much, you know, going by the advice of their caregivers, which is, you know, entirely appropriate and um, there's a lot of experience behind that but I think sometimes having extra information means you can make informed questions and sort mm. of say well you know this is my situation or would this be right for me because of x y and z so it actually might mm -hmm. draw out more information about a family history or an ethnicity that might impact on their their prostate cancer journey so I think sometimes the more information you have means that you can make you know better you know questions to your healthcare provider and hopefully have a better outcome as a okay. result. So I guess in summary, your research is really about stratifying the risk so that a patient can make an informed decision. Absolutely. Right, yeah. that's exciting. 
Very important. Yeah. Um, and Teresa, I know that you've just come off the back of yes. 10 years of a very exciting <laughs> oh, yes. project. Yeah. Can you explain uh, what you've found during mm -hmm. that that time and also where your project is currently? Yes, yes. So we have been working on a project where we look at the ability of androgen hormones, uh, which androgen hormones are high in men and you need your ha androgen hormones to produce a male <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and to produce a male phenotype, you know. Uh, and, and so a lot of people think androgen hormones are only relevant for men, but women make androgen hormones too. We just tend to have much greater estrogen action. Mm -hmm. So as I was telling you before, abnormal estrogen action is what drives the majority of breast cancers. And what our, our research showed was that your internal androgen hormone system is able to combat the abnormal estrogen action. It's like a tug of war. Right. You know, yeah. Estrogen pulling too far this way can cause breast cancer. And I, and I believe that the reason it kind of is winning the tug of war is because of changes in your body that mean your androgen hormones just don't have the power to counteract it. And what our research shows is that you can give a certain drug that activates, you know, reactivates your androgen yeah. <laughs> hormones uh, and, and can pull back on it mm -hmm. and can pull back on it quite effectively to treat the, the, the breast cancer. And, and we, we've provided a lot of evidence now that this can be a brand new form of, of therapy. Um, and it's one that's sort of revisiting the past a little bit. Way back, uh, even 70 years ago, 50 years ago, um, androgen hormones were given to women to treat breast cancer before we even knew anything about them because, I don't know, it was mm. just sort of generally known that you have this antagonism between right. estrogen and androgen hormones. Sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Like if there's a female-driven... Yeah, so it can... was used, but the problem is, of course, the androgen, if you use natural androgen hormone, you become more masculinized if you're a woman. So, you know, even though those early studies showed that it, it could work, the side effects were terrible and <laughs> women didn't like them, so it got thrown out of the box. And mm -hmm. then 50 years down the track, we have new research tools, we have new awareness, we have new understanding. But not only that, for us, we had a brand new drug. Uh, not that we created, but one that was created by a pharmaceutical company in the United States who contacted us and said, can you test our drug? And we did, and, um, and, and they showed that this drug could be given to women without virilizing action uh, in the women, and, um, and we took their drug and showed that it was really effective at treating breast cancer. Uh, and, and in our study, we showed that using models of very early disease as well as breast cancer that represented very end-stage disease or disease where there would be no current treatment option left available for that patient. Right. Uh, and again, the, the part of the strength of the study and the reason it took so many years is that we developed and used models that used tissues from patients. You know, we're not, um, you know, you always use different models in research, but when you can use actual patient tissues, 
to develop the evidence for a drug. It's, it's much more powerful and more likely to go through the clinic. Right. Um, because that's a terrible statistic that a lot of drugs that enter clinical trials, only 5% mm -hmm. ever make it to the patient. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we really need to develop better evidence before it even gets to trials. So I think our, our study really represents the kind of work that needs to be done before you jump in uh, to the expense and the effort of a clinical trial. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so it's very exciting. It's super exciting. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. So a new drug for breast cancer. Yeah. So that's really, yeah. that's yeah. And it plays on this tug of war between estrogen and androgen mm. action mm -hmm. in, in women. Right. Yeah. And men. And know. men, yeah. So men, I was going to say, same, yeah, because you know? potentially that, yeah. you know, that's a, an exciting outcome from the research mm. as well, is that, you know, there, there is that yin and yang balance in men as well, yep. where, mm. you know, testosterone is what drives, you know, maleness, so to speak. And, um, you know, in prostate cancer, testosterone is a, is a key driver of that as well. So they're very similar in that mm. sense. And, um, and so, again, some of this insight into that balance between androgen and estrogen signaling is probably going to be potentially really important for prostate mm. cancer also, mm. but just in the reverse direction. In, in That's so exciting. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. And Lisa, can you explain the process of um, trialling a drug, what those yeah. phases look like? Oh, look, I think there are so many ways that it can happen. Um, and, you know, something that we've been trying to do is really try and accelerate that process. So um, as Teresa said, most drugs don't uh, make it to the clinic or they, if they do, that uh, the majority of them don't show the efficacy that they showed in the laboratory studies, mm -hmm, yeah. which is always really disappointing for everyone mm -hmm. involved. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, we've been trying to sort of understand why there's this huge gulf between what we do in the lab and, and what happens in, in terms of patients' outcomes. And so one of the things that we've been working towards is rather than the usual trials, which are usually very big, they're mm -hmm. very, very expensive. Expensive, mm -hmm. and they usually take a very long time, particularly for something like prostate cancer. It's a bit the same with mm. breast cancer, but mm. particularly prostate cancer because it's a very long-standing uh, disease in the Jeez. sense that you often have it for a very long period of time. Before it's detected. Exactly. So when you're trialling a new intervention, um, you know, you often need to, to, you know, allow a long-time follow-up before you can actually see how effective a drug treatment mm. was. So in this case, you know, we, we wanted to try and come up with a way where we could test drugs much more quickly and decide which ones were the most promising to take forward into those big, expensive, mm -hmm. long trials uh, versus those were going to be futile. And so in that case, let's try and triage them as quickly as we possibly can. So uh, so we've been working in prostate cancer and, and we do the same in breast and, uh, and other cancers for that matter, uh, doing proof of concept or, or window of opportunity trials, so they're, they're called, is you know just short-term treatments for patients that have high-risk disease. Mm. And we can actually look at their uh, cancers before and after a very short-term treatment, see if there's any evidence that anything has happened, have the cancer cells sort of slowed down in their growth or are they being killed? If so, then that's a very promising sign mm. and, uh, and it, you know, maybe that's a drug that's worth taking forward. So, uh, so that's a way that we can actually trial things within a two to three year period mm -hmm. and take them into, you know, larger scale international trials much more rapidly. And I think that's the best for patients because I think the, the odds are generally against a new drug. And mm. so if you can take your best front runner forward, yeah. that's what you want to be doing and not, you know, wasting time and money and energy and you know, everyone's, t uh, you know, involvement yeah. in drugs that unfortunately, um, despite looking very promising, mm. just haven't held up in patients for whatever reason. Mm. So so that's kind of a, it's not maybe the standard um, process by any means, but it's a new way that we've been 
looking at here in Australia. And it's actually something mm. that's it's not actually done that often overseas. Often they don't always have the infrastructure to do these sorts of trials. It requires a lot of different people to come together uh, on an almost voluntary basis, essentially, yeah. where you're going to have surgery, uh, you're going to have pathology, you're going to have oncology, researchers, all working together and giving their time to sort of make this happen. Um, so it's a very, it's, you know, it's a complicated mm. setup, but once you get it going, it's actually not too bad. And, and, and our healthcare system in Australia is really well geared to these sorts of studies. And, mm. you know, so many of our colleagues, mm. you know, in the UK or, or the US yeah. sort of say, oh, we would love to do more of this, yeah. but it's just it, the, the logistics of it would just be too mm. great. So our, our population size and our relatively simplified health system really works for us in this case. So it's an area mm. where, you know, Australia doesn't feel like the poor cousin. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Yeah, so. yeah. 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 No, and, and when you bring it to a real sense, a mm. lot of a lot of um, the patients that are being offered these clinical trials, mm. sometimes it's their last option. That's right. And it's, it's an emotional decision to have to make an often um, that will be a beacon of hope for them. So you mm. really want to be able to give them a medication that's, um, that's got more hope for working. Absolutely. And mm. that's part of the, the other reason that we do these trials the way we do is that we're actually doing the much earlier stage of disease. So rather than um, only offering a clinical trial to someone who's failed all other therapies, mm. um, which is, again, a big ask for a new drug to be mm. effective in that sort of very heavily pre-treated mm. setting, you know, if we look earlier stage of disease, uh, you know, th these are patients that are relatively healthy, that can tolerate drugs mm. well, mm. Yep. and, you know, you can actually get a really good indication of how well a drug's going to perform. Mm. So that's another reason that doing these these window of opportunity mm. trials earlier, uh, and they do it with breast cancer yeah, now as well before surgery, yeah. um, so that you can really look carefully at the tumour afterwards and see, did I actually have an effect? Um, and is it the effect yeah. that we hoped for? Right. Mm. Mm. So that you can develop evidence to give the drug earlier. That's yeah. right. Mm. Or give the drug as a, a different first-line therapy rather than, than the last stage. resort. Yeah, that's right. Yes. That's okay. right. Yeah. Well, but it takes a lot of good evidence to jump over what's considered standard of care. Oh, totally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why your work, both yeah. of you, is yeah. so important. Yeah. So I, I'm very thankful for your time today. <laughs> um, and on behalf of the Discovery Pod listeners, I'm sure as well everyone is affected by cancer in one way or another um, and it's really encouraging um, and builds a lot of confidence to know that there are very passionate people behind the scenes uh, making sure that the treatments are as, as effective as they possibly can be. So thank you very much for thank your time you. and your work. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to The Discovery Pod, brought to you by the University of Adelaide. Join us next time when we discuss ethical labour.